Well, good morning. I want to extend my uh, welcome along with Travis's. My name's Kevin. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, if you're welcoming, with, uh, if you're uh, visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We know that people are visiting for all sorts of reasons during this season, and we just want to say welcome for whatever that reason in is, unless it's a malicious reason, and we have to take this back later. We're really glad that you're here. Glad you're visiting with us, even if it's just for a time. Now, last Sunday, the scriptures that we read, actually just before this one, addressed how we are to handle conflict. And there's an obvious question that comes up when you're dealing with conflict, especially if you're dealing with conflict with the same person for the same reasons over and over. How many times should I forgive someone? Now, everyone would like to know the answer to that question. All of us as humans ask that at some point in our lives, even if we're not willing to admit it. But who's bold enough to ask Jesus that question? Peter is. That's who. Peter's the guy in class that asked the question that no one else wants to ask, but they're really glad when someone else is willing to ask it. I thank God for people like Peter. I, I want to be more bold in asking questions like he is because that's a way of growing in relationship with Jesus. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke, rebuke Peter for asking a question. He answers his question. Now, Peter thinks he's being generous when he recommends a number to Jesus. As many as seven times, and Jesus immediately obliterates that idea. Not seven times, he says, but 70 times seven or 77 times. The, the translation could go either way, and it really doesn't matter which it is because the point is the same. Jesus is creating an infinite divine number. The repetition of sevens opens up into the confounding vastness of God's mercy and pardon. Now, the number also has some history. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, there's this man named Cain. He murders his brother Abel, and then he is sent away from his family, and he builds a city where there was a culture based on vengeance. It was like an ancient Gotham city, if you will. And revenge was the normative way of handling conflict. So one of Cain's descendants was this man named Lamech. And Lamech wrote a little ditty exalting his skill at getting revenge. Listen to it. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now later... We hear similar numbers in the Old Testament book of Daniel, but it's to the opposite effect. It's not about vengeance, it's about forgiveness. Israel's sin had resulted in exile from their land, and Daniel is there in exile. He's praying for a day when the people can return to Israel. He's confessing his sin along with the sins of his people, the nation of Israel. And he's asking God for forgiveness. And an angel comes and tells Daniel that in a period of 70 and 7 weeks, there will be an end to the people's sin, and their iniquity will be atoned for. So if you're listening carefully, when Jesus uses this number, he's signaling a couple of things. One, he's signaling that the church is a new kind of city. It's not like the city Cain and Lamech built, built based on vengeance. 
Instead, Jesus is building a place where forgiveness is to be ingrained within the culture into our dealings with each other, where forgiveness is the normative way for dealing with conflict between one another. But two, Jesus is also signaling that the 70 and seven weeks are up. Sin and iniquity are soon going to be atoned for. So then Jesus tells a story to illustrate this entire point. Now, I'm going to retell this story, drawing out some of the details that can easily be overlooked. And then I want to ask you two personal questions to close. So here's the story. A king is settling his accounts. A servant's brought in owing 10,000 talents. Now, one talent in this period was equal to about 6,000 denarii. And a denarii was one day's wage. So this man owes 10,000 talents, so 60 million denarii. I know some of you are going to test the math. Just know this. This is more than a lifetime of work that this man owes. My pastor friend Blake at Holy Cross in Crozet, he was doing, trying to figure the math this week, and he estimated it to be about $4.5 billion in our modern t- uh, economy. Now, more than likely, It was more money than there was in the entire local economy in which Jesus is telling this story. Now, there's an intentional absurdity in these numbers. This man owes an enormous debt. By his own admission, he can't pay it. So the king plans to sell him and his family as slaves. But the servant falls on his knees and begs the king for patience. Be patient with me, he says. This is the Old Testament word for long-suffering. This is the character of God in the Old Testament. He is patient with his people. And the man is asking his master, will you be patient with me? Then he vows to pay back everything. Now, again, this is absurd. (laughs) He can't pay back everything. In his whole life, he will not be able to make enough money to pay back this debt. But that's a key detail in the story. Instead of selling him off, the king immediately turns toward compassion. He turns on a dime toward compassion and mercy. And he goes far beyond what the servant requests, knowing that much better than the servant does, that the amount can't be repaid. The king releases him, and he completely forgives his debt. Now, this servant then leaves the king. He's completely free. He has no need to be anxious or to fret about anything. He's just received the best news of his entire life. But he immediately finds one of his fellow servants, someone just like him. It's emphasized in the story, a fellow servant. They're on the same playing field. This servant owes him a hundred denarii, three months' wages. Remember, he owed 60 million over a lifetime of wages. What's he do? He grabs the fellow servant by the neck and he begins to throttle him and says, pay back what you owe me. Notice that the man himself never mentions the number. The story tells us the number, but he doesn't tell us the number. The number doesn't even seem to matter. It's just the fact that someone owes him something. Now, this fellow servant happens to respond in the exact same way that the servant responded earlier to the king. He throws himself down on his knees and he begs for patience. Will you be long-suffering with me? He vows to repay him. Look, the only difference in the wording 
between what the first servant said to the king and what this second servant says to the fellow servant. The only difference is that the first servant told his master he would repay all of it, this enormous sum, all 60 million denarii, which again, that was impossible. But here the second servant simply says, I'll repay it. It's no exaggerating. There's no need for exaggerating. It's not a huge sum. It's simple. I'll take care of it. But the servant still refuses to show patience. He throws his fellow servant into prison until he can pay the debt. And in the meantime, word starts to travel around to the other servants what's happened. And we're told that they are literally grieved. The word that's used here to describe their reaction is the same word that is used to describe when Jesus asked Peter the third time, do you love me? Reminding him for the third time of his failure to acknowledge Jesus. And Peter was cut to the heart. These servants are cut to the heart. They're not just tattling when they tell the king. They're grieved because the character of the kingdom is being warped by this servant. You see, the king has shown them how to forgive each other by forgiving their debts. He's trying to teach them, build a city based on forgiveness. But this servant is turning it into just another city of vengeance, like the city that Cain and Lamech were building. So the king responds by calling in the servant again. He immediately brandishes the servant as a wicked servant. Now, I want you to notice this. The king does not call the servant wicked because of a debt he owes. It's not because of the enormous debt that he calls him wicked. He only calls him wicked because the servant refused to show the same mercy that was shown to him. That's the only reason. Now, the king then throws this man in prison until he can pay his debt, which one more time is impossible. He cannot pay the debt. Then Jesus concludes the story this way. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, at the background of this story is the line that Christians pray from the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts or our sins as we forgive our debtors, those who sin against us. And debt brings out an important aspect of the story. I'm going to now ask you two personal questions from this story. And here's the first. Are you receiving God's forgiveness in your life? Are you receiving God's forgiveness in your own life? God is a king, and all of us live in enormous debt to God. What kind of debt? Debt's not just something financial or transactional. This is a point Jesus is making, is that we owe something to God we are completely unable to pay. Money aside, debt in this sense is relational. It's what's due to another, what they are worthy of. So children, for example, are in debt to their mothers beyond what they can pay. Not financial debt, though that can be true. Children can be in financial debt to their mothers. But more than that, they are in relational debt. They live in it through their entire lives. Their mother bore them, gave birth to them, nurtured them. And you cannot repay that. You just can't. You can only show gratitude for it. That's the only thing that you can do. The greatest thing that you can do. 
And if you try to repay it, you end up making it into a transactional relationship and you completely distort it. It's a relationship built on love. That can't be transactional. So what type of debt are we in with God? We are in a constant state of owing God everything. Everything. He's our creator. He's full of beauty, perfection, and love. Enormous amounts of love. He provides us everything we need for life, for joy, for pleasure. But humans often ignore God. And other times we outrightly reject him and say we know better than he does. So what does God do about the debt that humans owe? Well, I mentioned earlier this this number Jesus uses, 70 and 7. It signals a day when sin is going to be atoned for. Now, the king in Jesus' story chooses to extend forgiveness toward the servant. But realize this means that the king himself is absorbing the debt of the servant. He's taking it as a personal loss to himself. So in a subtle way, this story is hinting at what God does with our debt as human beings. God absorbs the pain in himself. The cross of Jesus functions as a culmination point where all our debt is piled up and absorbed while Jesus is rejected and unjustly killed. He goes to live in the city of Cain and Lamech. And what happens to the perfect one when he goes to live there? He receives the worst of our brutal form of justice. And it's only self-righteousness that would make us say that it would be any different if Jesus came today. We would likely do the same thing. Jesus opens up for us God's forgiveness. And whether you're a Christian or not, we all have a vague sense, a nagging sense that we're guilty. We may not even know what we're guilty of. And we're usually afraid that admitting guilt will somehow demean us, that it will mean that we're completely worthless to say that we're guilty, to acknowledge it. It would be like that servant saying, I'll repay all that debt, and he knows he can't. So God says to us in the midst of our guilt, I made you. I love you. You are guilty, but I want to take that from you. I want to pay that debt for you. So this is the personal question. Are you receiving God's forgiveness in your life? His total forgiveness for your immeasurable debt. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you need to receive God's forgiveness for a first time. And if you are a Christian, maybe you need to make it a more regular and ongoing practice. The reason that Christians pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, should pray the Lord's Prayer every day, (laughs) and within our liturgy, it's a part of our every Sunday liturgy, but it's also a part of daily prayers. If If you practice Uh, morning and evening prayer as um, Christians have for a very long time. We continually pray this prayer because we need God's forgiveness to be fresh in our lives every day. We need it to travel into deeper levels of our being. So are you letting that happen? Are you receiving God's forgiveness in your life? Total free forgiveness. Now here's the second last question that goes with that one. Are you extending God's forgiveness to others? 
The same forgiveness that's offered to you, are you extending it to others? So the irony of the story lies in the fact that the greater the debt is, the greater the capacity God shows for forgiveness. (laughs) This is an outrageous debt, and God says, it's nothing. I'm taking it. The king forgives an outrageous debt. But with us, the smaller the debt, the more stubborn we can become in our lack of forgiveness. That man, forgiven of so much, goes to someone who owes him so little and tries to strangle him for it. That servant throttles a fellow servant for pennies. Now, by his nature, God is long-suffering. He's patient. But humans, we can be tyrannical toward each other. We don't want to depend on others, even for the forgiveness that we need from each other. And vice versa, we don't want others to depend on us for the forgiveness that they need in their lives. Most of our failures in the areas of love and forgiveness toward each other are because we fail to remember what's been shown to us, the kind of love and the kind of forgiveness. So again, to the beginning, Peter asked how many times we should forgive one who sins against us. He's worried, like a lot of us are, about being abused and trampled on by people who would sin against him no matter how many times he forgave them. Look, forgiveness is always carried out in a broken world among broken relationships, broken people. People don't always ask you for it, even when they need it. Your willingness to extend it to people can be completely rejected and shunned. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't need to set healthy boundaries for a relationship. But what it does mean is that within your heart, you have or you're working to release a person from their guilt. That's what forgiveness is. You're releasing a person. You're not holding it against them. You're not holding it over their head. Unforgiveness is like the servant who had his hand around his fellow servant's neck. You're holding on to it. But forgiveness is when we are willing to set people free from it, even if they don't ask us for it. Now, when we refuse to set people free, what happens is we hold ourselves in guilt too. We create a bottleneck on God's mercy It can't flow into our lives because we're not willing to let it flow out. So Jesus says in this story that the thing that we should fear most is not the idea of someone getting the best of us, abusing us, trampling on us over and over. Rather, the thing that we should fear most is not being merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. So two questions once again. Are you receiving the Father's forgiveness in your life? And are you extending that same mercy to others? It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.